Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today's guest is Cindy Rudd. She works as a receptionist and says she is best described as an ordinary person with an extraordinary story. Eleven years ago, she found herself in a crisis, needing to get herself and her family away from a severely abusive, controlling church. Though skillful in lies and manipulations, this pastor, who was in charge of the church, ultimately learned he was no match for this mother's love. Please listen and hopefully be inspired as I was by this mother, Cindy, who was willing to break her own heart to free herself and her children. Here's Cindy now. So I want to welcome Cindy Rudd to the show today. I'm very excited to be able to speak with you, to be able to hear from your perspective, which is because of your own experiences and also as a parent and You had a lot of insights that you shared with me via email about so many of the things that get in the way of being able to maintain power, maintain control, maintain relationships, and be able to be in a person's life who you love uh, in the way that you would like to be able to be in their life. And um, you have a very interesting story of disconnection and mostly reconnection. Uh, And uh, so I think being able to talk about that, because that is much more prevalent than I think people realize that not only is there the danger of getting involved in an organization that can take over your life, but it can stand right in the way of your life with your loved ones. Uh, And then there's a lot of healing that needs to take place. Um, and time that feels like it's lost that then you want to make up for. So I want to uh, have you be able to introduce yourself and then we'll start with your story. So take it away. All right. I am Cindy Rudd and I am happy to be here today to tell my story. I was involved with a church, um, a so-called church for 21 years. And um, it it was an independent Baptist church. And um, I don't want to throw that denomination under the bus. I am speaking solely on what happened to me with a particular pastor and a particular group of individuals. Um, But it was um, a life that was very controlled. Um, and the control escalated. It it grew with every passing year. And I found myself in my late 40s really questioning um, whether I should stay in the church or not. And as a woman in that situation, you don't have the voice that to leave. It's you would think as a normal citizen, you can leave a church. If you don't like what the church is doing, you can leave a church anytime you want to without all these consequences. But I read a book that opened my eyes and gave me at that time some scriptural reasoning and not just opinion or person's opinion about certain beliefs, but this really gave scriptural reason. I felt like I had a scriptural reason to leave the church. And that would not be as important to me today as it was to me then, because everything I thought I had to have this, you know, major spiritual reason. Um, But anyway, I asked to meet with the pastor. He refused to meet with me because I wanted to discuss my concerns. Um, and then I um, I told my husband that at the my husband then at, I was not going to go back to church. And that is when my life turned on its end. 
um, the pastor told my husband to take my two minor children that were at home. Um, they were nine and 16 at the time and leave me. Um, it, he thought it was a power play to snap me back in order. And, um, anyway, I ended up having to file separation papers. The church hid my children from me. Um, and I had to file separation papers to even see my children, get my children back. This story is so complicated because my I have four children. Two are at home and two are living in the pastor's house. And I can talk a little more about that, which is part of the reason that I knew I needed to leave. Okay. All right. So just from what you've said so far, I have a couple of questions and then I want to be able to hear more about what you are what you were just about to talk about, about two of your kids living in the pastor's house, because I'm sure that piqued people's interest. Um, <laughs> that's not something you hear often. No, no, no. No. So uh, first of all, you know, when you're talking about finding a scriptural reason to leave the church, yes, it is true that part of your orientation is going to be trying to find proof where you're used to finding the answers and the proof. And that that's the only source of authentic and good and true and right information at the time. At least that's often how people think. And so they'll go back to a source that may or may not be really what is giving them accurate or good information. But I'm wondering, what was it? What was it that you found that gave you the reason to leave? What amazed me, this this book, it's The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. I had to sneak behind my husband's back to even read it. I had to go to the library. Um, one of your guests, it was the podcast last week, I think, was talking about being in the library and feeling like there was a gun to her back. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't believe she said that because my heart was pounding so hard when I was in that library. I thought people could hear it. It was that loud. And I was afraid that there was going to be an earthquake or something because the words that I was reading, I was like, how did someone know what I was living? And at one page, I was flipping and it was like, okay, this chapter won't be, be good. And it, no, it was even better. And it was like, I was just flipping and flipping. And I was like, how did somebody know what I was living? And I didn't even think at that time I was so broken. I didn't think that anyone would believe what I had been living. And I didn't, I was so encouraged and mystified at the book. And it wasn't the one thing it said. It, it was all the things, the whole book from cover to cover. I could check every box and it was like carrot on a stick you know, your leader is, is all authority, you know, the, the misrepresentation of authority, um, always, it, we're going to have a breakthrough out ahead of all, all these things. And there was financial abuse. And like I say, the whole book, it was the whole book is like, I tried to shut it. I, I'd shut it. I said, I'm never going to look at it again. And I went downstairs and I checked it out. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to read it. And I couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> I just kept reading it and reading it. I thought, well, I just repent. <laughs> this, what I, this was what I remember thinking. Just repent. Don't tell anybody you did this. Um, and forget the whole thing. But I couldn't. I, I couldn't because I wanted out so bad. I had wanted to leave for 10 years. It had been 10 years since I had decided, I made a decision in my heart that I was out of the church. I knew I couldn't pay the consequences. I knew I couldn't have my children lose my children or all the things that were going to happen to me if I tried to leave. But in my heart, I knew I could say no. <laughs> And this book connected my heart to the outside. So in those moments when you don't feel alone and you feel understood, there is still the, I mean, it can be torturous to 
have one foot out, one foot in. And that was true for 10 years, which is actually not uncommon for such a significant amount of time, whatever it is proportionally to how people, how long people are involved, where you don't want to be there. Uh, And sometimes you think you're the only one who feels that way because they're faking it just like you're faking it because you have to. And so true. I, I guess I, I want people to really hear that message. I've said it on other podcasts, but I really want, if you're in a situation and you feel like you're the only one who is unhappy there, it's just not the case. Uh, you are not at all alone. And sometimes you don't find that out until you leave. And then that gives other people the courage to leave or they, you know, they can tell you later on they were feeling the same way. Um, but here you can feel like that's it. You're the one. Uh, and so maybe you're a bad seed or something's wrong with you. Not only that, he had his doctorate from Purdue in psychology. And so he, um, would mandate people be in counseling and he counseling was just another nightmare. You spilling your guts, being accused of something that you didn't even do. And you couldn't argue, you couldn't defend yourself. You couldn't say, no, that's not what I meant. He assigned a motive. And then not only that, on Sunday, he would preach it from the pulpit and he would disclose your deepest problem or, you know, whatever you confided, if you confided something in him, it was a small enough group that when he preached about it and about what he determined your sin problem was, everybody knew they were talking about you and it was horrific. So there wasn't any, if you, like if you had a a woman, a friend, you know, uh, which there were a lot of ladies there that I was friends with, but I couldn't complain to them if I did say something they would go and tell on me. As my children got older, they were encouraged to do the same thing. So there was nowhere to speak your mind. No, nowhere that was safe. And and that happens a lot also with counseling or in quotes in, in these groups. And usually it is that it's for you to disclose things that then are going to be used against you or to shame you or to keep you in line. And oftentimes there is this push to share everything and that if you're holding back, then that's punishable or it must mean you have a secret or something. There's sort of a way to get you to just keep opening up and sharing. So what was it within this group that was the motivator, for lack of a better term, you know, to get people to just talk? even though at the end of the day, they kind of knew that this information was going to be used against them. It was um, authority. The word authority was thrown around all the time. And if you're not reporting to your authority, um, the men had to send emails every night about what they did to make money that day. Because the financial abuse that went on in there is so incredible that it's hard to even explain it all. And yeah. And, and as women, we were supposed to talk to our pastor's wife once a week. Like if you didn't report in, you, you were called out, you got talked to, I mean, it, and there was no missing church, no missing. I mean, unless you were really ill, I mean, and if you did, what would happen? They would send someone to your house. Wow, that's serious. They would send someone to your house. The pastor would call your husband. You just, it didn't happen really. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really didn't happen because what happened, as you know, you're away from there for a week or two. I mean, even if you're legitimate, like you got a large family sickness going through the house, so you miss two weeks, your mind starts clearing up and you start getting angry. And you start, you start resenting this and seeing that and not wanting to participate because you're, you know, it, your mind starts to clear. That's why we weren't allowed to visit with our families. We weren't allowed to go have 
the you know Christmas with our families or go. We weren't allowed to stay. I think more than two nights, um, without talking to a pastor about it, because mm-hmm. once we got out, once they couldn't let us out. Yeah. And the thing about it is that we are free moving people. We're not in a prison. We're not in chains. We. You could have been my next door neighbor. Well, probably not you. But, you know, would have thought, what a cute family. You know, some people have described it to me like uh, a fix, like they got a fix of this drug when they would have to have daily contact with people in their group or uh, have to report back, like the men had to report back about whatever money they made and you had to check in weekly, if not more so. Uh, then you get a dose of kind of the drug of it. And then you're right. When you spend time away, people who are trying to control you know not to let you alone for too long uh, because oftentimes you are going to start to have your individuality emerge, the things that are bothering you, you'll start to feel them. You won't be also uh, enthusiastic about going back. You're going to feel like it's more of an obligation and you're kind of dreading it. And, you know, they just, they want you on the hamster wheel. So you're not having time to think and reflect, you know. So is that how it was? Yeah. They had a word for it. Oh, she's under it. It's when you went to church and you had the look on your face, which apparently I had a lot. Um you had to not only put up with all the abuse, but you needed to smile when you when you went there. I can remember sitting in church, focusing on the corners of my mouth and thinking, I had better keep these these corners of my mouth up or he is going to call me out right now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And so... Before we go back to talking about you and your kids, you were talking about the financial abuse and that it's very, very extreme there, he said. So can you tell a little bit about that? Because that's also usually part of this, being people being used for free labor or being pushed to bring more money in, you know, to keep the church going or the group going. Of any 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 religious organization that I have ever seen exposed in the media, what went on in that church that I was part of was worse, was bigger, involved more more of people's money than anything I have ever seen. My husband was never home. He was always either working, working a second job, or working for building the pastor's house or working um, on some project having to do with the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much a single mom. And what would happen is now, you know, in, in our, in a lot of churches, 10% is your tithe. That's kind of, you know, not excessive. It's right. It's, standard for some people and the, and it's your belief and whatever you want to give at the height of some uh, I would say at the height of of what I can remember we were giving 30% of our income then we were paying a tenth the mortgage was divided by the men in the church and we were paying an additional $400 a month on his mortgage and then on top of that, every Sunday at the end of the service, they would add up how much money was given. And if it wasn't enough, they would tell the men would have a meeting and they would be told how much they still needed. And it was supposed to be divided by the men that were standing there at the meeting. So it was like a shakedown. Then. <laughs> I'm telling you, I did not, I could not buy groceries. Um, I could not buy groceries until after that because I I never knew what my husband was going to give and I didn't know how much money we had. And when I 
tell you my cupboards were bare. I won't say we went hungry, but I will say that we did not have what we needed. Mm. Wow. I would, I had this elaborate thing that I did, um, which was floating checks. And this was back in the day when the checks didn't go through in, instantly. So I had, I knew the grocery stores and I knew the period of days and I would write a check, write another check, get cash, cover that check. And I had it elaborate so that I could get food in my house to feed my children. And we were not allowed to take food stamps or have Medicaid, even though our family, we were, we were poor. We did not have a lot of money. And a lot of the time, this is because my husband was involved in church businesses and it was so messed up. Church businesses would pay the church and not pay the employees. And I can remember one specific time going six weeks without a paycheck, putting our car in a title loan so that we, I mean, I've had an eviction notice before. I've. Well, it's, I'm just thinking about the stress of it all. Here you had to worry about not being able to provide for your kids, which is, you know, true for so many people just in life in general now and people dealing with uh, the economy sometimes the way it is and, uh, and not having the same opportunities, but still when you're devoted to something and when you're shown yourself to be someone devoted and you're working so many hours and you still don't have enough and it doesn't matter to the people there or to the leadership there. I and mean, then that's a whole other level of, I think, resentment. Yes. And the anger that just, you know, I was called the angry person. And I, I was called out and put on display for that many times, <laughs> but it wasn't wrong. Exactly. Right. It was not wrong. So here, going back to you talking about your kids. So let's talk a little bit more about that. And then also what happened and what's happened since, because I know there are a couple of steps to this story. So my older two kids were living in the pastor's house. And this, I'll start with the side note on this. This is because he discovered that once the kids went to college, they were leaving the church. So when I said I wasn't going back to church, I had a 16-year-old and a 9-year-old at home and two older children living with him. So those two older children became his mouthpiece into the mix. And even though I was awarded custody of my children, I had the children for a year. They were coached on how to break me or they would scream at me. They would tear up the house when I was at work. They would scream at me, you're going to hell. My son tried to jump out of the car. I had arranged through the guardian, was trying to understand what was going on in the family. And back then, it's been almost 11 years now. This type of information about cults and about churches and the control, it wasn't as free-flowing as it is now. And it, you know, I I remember taking my taxes to the guardian and showing her what we had been giving, thinking she'll get it. (laughs) I don't know, like I wanted some concrete proof, like I had no concrete proof. And my older children were telling you know, were saying that I was abusive. And anyway, there was mouthpieces of all types feeding into the situation. And even though I had my kids, I lost my kids. Mm. I couldn't through to them. I tried everything. I took them to counselors. They wouldn't talk to the counselors. And the counselors knew that something was wrong. But when you're sitting there and the child won't talk to you, you know, I mean, either they're not 
trained well enough to get the, to know what to say, or the influence is so strong that the kids are just not responding and they're really raging at me. I did it for a year. I finally said, I love you, but you're going to have to, um, we can't live like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, and I don't know if it's too difficult to think back on the details of this time, so I'm sure it's not fun. Um, but the fact that the two older ones were the pastor's mouthpiece, as you said, and it sounds like the younger ones also were sort of joining in and um, needing to, or feeling like they needed to follow along with kind of the right way to think about you in quotes, uh, and that it was okay to mistreat you in this way. Um, I'm wondering when you're saying that they were screaming at you, what sort of things were they saying? And I'm sure, you know, probably a lot of it sounded like the pastor, but what were they saying? What were they screaming at you? You don't love me enough to do what you need to do, which means repent and come back. Um, you're going to go to hell, you know, it would be like, shut up. I can't stand you. And, you know, it was a strict home before my kids, my kids never talk back to me or scream and yell at me. I mean, it wasn't even, you know, a, a way that things were. And I, they wouldn't let me buy them anything. It wasn't like I was trying to like buy them off or anything, but like, if I, I remember buying my daughter a pair of boots that she wanted, had been wanting, and she took them and she threw them in the trash. One time she took everything on her bed. I had bought new bedding and she took it and threw it in the carport and just left it. And I mean, it was chaos. They just, they were set to make me let them go live with their father and be part of the church because you know, I tried to take them to different, to churches to visit, and that did not, I mean, it wouldn't even, the things that I tried, I was so surprised that there is no legal help, really, for what your children choose, where your children choose to go to church, they're free to go, if they're not being hurt. And how do you say they're being hurt when all this crazy life is going on? The law is not about crazy life. The law is about rape or mm -hmm. beating or that's, that's where I really felt left un, undone. Yeah. You had mentioned before when we were um, communicating in preparation for this talk about when it's abusive, but not in a way that's obvious. So, so when it is hard to prove, the law um, doesn't often know what to do with that. They're looking for a bruise. They're looking for something that is a sign to them, but they might not um, be able to really help you out. And it's very, very, very frustrating because you could see that the children were turned against you. You could also see that in their rejection of things that you got for them, they, it was a rejection of you and to then not accept anything from you because you were then either tainted in some way. I mean, I don't know what the, what was fostering them rejecting what you would get. It was because I had more money than I had you been used to having because and this brings in another part of the story because I reconnected with my parents after seven years of not being allowed to talk to them mm. I mean how do you how in the world if it hadn't been for my parents I couldn't have gotten a lawyer to get my kids back in the first place mm-hmm so when you reconnected, and then I want to go back to talking about what happened with your kids, but when you reconnected with your parents, how did that happen? What did you do? How did you make that first move? This was um, maybe a month or two after reading the book. I had already, I think I had 
yes, I had said that I was, I had stopped going to church and I had been seven years not knowing if my parents were alive or dead. And my father had, had some health issues. So I was afraid in my, in my heart, in my gut, I was afraid that I had missed him, that he would be dead. And I had, I sat there and I, I, I went to a park and I sat in the park and I stared at my phone and, and I said, you've got to do it. And I couldn't think of what I was going to say. And I pushed the button and my mother answered the phone and the emotion that was in my throat, I couldn't hardly speak. And all I could think of to say, I started to say, I'm the worst daughter. And that's all far as I got. She said, Cindy, no. Where are you? Are you okay? What do you need? Mm. And I mean, I couldn't speak. It was just a flood of emotion. And she was talking and she says, your daddy, your daddy's outside. I know he wants to talk to you. And I just lost it because I knew I had made it back to them in time to be part of their life. Anyway, instantly, I mean, see, they lost their grandchildren. This doesn't go just to me. They lost their grandchildren throughout this entire thing. The other thing that had started happening about the same time that I left, which was besides the book, was a turning point for me. He was arranging marriages. Mm. And now my daughters are in their 20, getting to their early 20s, starting to go to college. It's starting to be time when this is going to happen in their lives. And I'm looking around going over my dead body. Mm hmm. And I, and, and, you know, I'm laughing, making jokes, but really what I thought was, it was a moment. I can't remember where I was standing. I can remember what I was looking at when I thought it, but I was like, they're going to have the same life you are. They're going to be writing checks and floating checks and, you know, all these things this is going to be their life. And, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't take my life back, but when I saw it was my kids, I was like, oh, oh no, uh uh-uh, no. Mm -hmm. And then I saw, but you know, those worlds have met and a little bit more where I'm like, if it's not good enough for them, it's not good enough for you. Okay. So going back in terms of the chronology you were talking about, you were saying after a year of just being screamed at by your children, then what happened when you were saying, no, this is just not a livable situation for us right now? I'm sure that was a very difficult moment. So what, what happened then? Well, what was starting to take place is that, you know, when you have custody and you have visitation, the the dad gets them every other weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, they were wanting, they were insisting on going with him every weekend. And I was trying to work because suddenly I have, you know, I'm in the middle of a divorce and I'm trying to work. And I've had to put, you know, I've got kids that, um, I've got kids in two different schools and I've got, um, they're not, they're just after school, they're calling their friends, their friends are coming, their sisters are driving. So they're coming to pick them up. And suddenly I don't have the kids anyway. I don't have my weekend with them when I would be off from work that I could try to connect with them. Every possible thing. And if they, if I made them stay, it was like, like they would, cry and be horrible and you know even the guardian was like well you know the only way you can stop this is if you put a restraining order on your daughters and I'm thinking who puts a restraining order on their children you you know do you want to do that my lawyer wanted to take this whole thing to trial and run him up the flagpole there's part of me that kind of wonders how that could have been, but here's the thing. My parents 
said, I will second mortgage our house if you want to do it. Because we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. I know I would have won, Rachel. I know I would have gotten my kids, but I wouldn't have gotten them back. Ah, uh, right, right. And then my parents are put in a je- you know, in jeopardy, and they're in their seventies at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to make the choice. I couldn't take it anymore, and I knew I couldn't fight it. And I just said, "Choose. I want you to choose where you want to live." You are always welcome to live with me. I'm your mom. My door is always open. But you, but I cannot live this way and I won't live this way. This is not living. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, I had to sign off on, eventually I had to sign custody because the law says that you have to sign custody as, or the, the custody has to read who they're really living with, even though. So I had to sign that over. I remember signing that piece of paper. Ooh. And that was really hard. I'll bet. And, and even though I had unlimited visitation, the one wise thing I did, which this is also in there, the entire church overnight up and moved in the middle of this they moved it to the a neighboring to North Carolina they moved to the neighboring state and you know it's so weird Rachel it just is weird I think he was terrified of me (laughs) I think he was really scared and he thought I had some arsenal that I really didn't have Mm. okay what do you think he thought you had I think he thought he was being court. I think he thought he would be investigated. I could have played a card, but I'm an honest person. I could have made I could have made the guardian think or someone around, you know, one of the therapists that we tried to get them to think, oh, he's just a molester. That's why those girls live in his attic. That's I mean, in his house upstairs. Because that wasn't going on. But you also have to know that I wasn't far enough in my own journey to be able to call out what it was. And you know what? Even in the middle of all this stuff, I was not assured. There were days when I thought I would go back. I called my lawyer one time and I said, I'm calling everything off. I'm I'm going back. I can't do this. It's Christmas time. <laughs> I can't do it. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. talked off the ledge he said if you do it you'll never see your kids again oh wow okay what happened next so that you had to sign this paper I can only imagine what it was like to sign that and then what happened because I know you you have been able to reconnect and so I'm curious about how that happened they went to live with their father I guess there's some humor in every situation but (laughs) you know it was I thought he will never be able to do it. That's what I thought. (laughs) Because because he had never done it. You know, he had not been this, you know, I had been the stay-at-home mom. But the sad thing is that he did do it, but not very well. And my daughters did help out, the older ones. Mm -hmm. And the people in the church started taking over. So new they have new families in a sense and um i'm supposed to have unlimited visitation i get i go get the kids the kids don't want to do anything they won't get out of the car i take them to like the fun you know amusement park they won't get out of the car i try to do you know it's it's and then eventually it's just it ends up being from that point I go, I go four years, four years, no, no, none of my family in my life. No, none of my kids, no kids, nothing. Wow. So you're living on your own or were you with your parents? No, I'm actually living with someone who had left the church. They had a finished room of the garage. I lived in there, in that room. They let me live there very cheaply. As I got 
back on my feet. Okay. So, you know, the four, I'm thinking of the four years because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to have your kids back at all ever. And so I'm trying to also process myself because I don't know how I come across. I may sound cocky. I may sound self-assured. But let me tell you, when I came out of that that and I lost everything like I did, I was a mess. I'm sure you were. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but, and this is a cautionary tale. I think some of my story is a cautionary tale. I threw myself into working two jobs. I took all the marital debt, even though we were married for 27 years. Of course, it was, you know, not supposed to be mine. Right, right. I determined that I was going to, I put all that energy and all that angst and all that whatever into working hard, paying off this debt. And trying, I thought I've got the best thing I can do is make a life that when my kids come to their senses, they're going to want to come to me and I'll be there for them. That's very powerful. That's very powerful. So is that what happened? I would say that, yes, that is what happened. Um, It didn't happen like, you know, rose petals and... (laughs) (laughs) magical kind of Disney music in the back. Yeah. My first daughter, my oldest daughter left first and she went about, I don't know how long it was, several months. And she did not talk to me. I couldn't get her to talk to me. I found out she was out. She was reaching out to my ex-husband's side of the family. and. and that was really hard for me, but but you have to know the number that was done on their mind. And just like me, layers are coming off. I'm I'm seeing how wrong my thinking was. So is she. She's having to process all the great, all the you know, and you know, there's that there's no you're I'm not sitting there. I can't just flip a magazine open and read an article about this. I'm like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And I'm vacillating back and forth. What have I done? I've destroyed my whole family and blah, blah, blah. And all my kids hate me now. And, you know, what have I done? But finally, we get connect- Finally, then I think it's, I'm not so sure of the time frame. The second daughter comes out. And, you know, I'm working a second job. I'm coming out of a retail store at 9.30 at night. And my daughter, whose number is still in my phone, is lighting up on my I missed call. I'm flipping out. I, I'm just flipping out. And it was, it was the greatest thing ever. Um, we connected pretty much right away. But then... Um, the third, my son is, um, it's only been in the last year that I've reconnected with him because he was nine years old when this happened. He's now 19. Okay. And he just really got out of the church about a year or two ago. So this is three of your four kids. And I want to just go back a second because I want to hear about the fourth, of course. Um, I'm wondering what prompted your kids to leave when they did your first, second, and third kids. What was their motivation for leaving? So the first one, he sent her, and when I say he, the pastor, had this kind of influence. She had always, she had become interested in politics. Um in college and she had done some things in the governor's campaign, blah, blah, blah. She was kind of involved with that. And she was interested in that. Um, but he, because I think he did it because he wanted her to be his lawyer. I know this sounds crazy, but I, he sent her off to law school of all things. He let her go off to college. The interesting thing is, and you will uh, you understand i know you understand the mindset 
she had six weeks left to finish her degree, law degree. Mm -hmm. She decides she's going to leave the church and she drops out of law school with six weeks left to finish because in her mind, it represented him. Right. Yeah. But the thing that I'm so proud of her is that then she goes back and she finishes and she passes the bar and Ooh, yay. I'm so glad to hear that part of the story. That is a good part. It's a good part of the story for a lot of reasons because I am, yes, I do understand why she didn't want to finish because it's tied in. And then it's like, she's doing the thing or fulfilling the wish or the goal set by the pastor, which she's not going to want to give him the satisfaction of. And she doesn't want to be tied in in that way. And I think you're right. A lot of people, if they are pushed to get a degree while they're involved in a controlling group, it's usually so that that degree is going to be used for the purposes of the group. And so she probably would have become the lawyer. Um, you'd have free legal service and unlimited free legal. And so, but, but what also happens is so many people kind of cut off their nose to spite their face, you know, that they will stop doing something because it's tied in. And then they realize, wait, I'm not going to let this group or this person take away my hard work and, and what I could be getting out of this experience and a life I could be having and being able to use it in other ways, not just tied in with the church. So I'm so glad that she finished. That's wonderful. So the second, this second one who immediately connected with you and you saw, I can only imagine what it was like to see that name on your phone. I, I can't even tell you. I, I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was dreaming. This is a really emotional uh, reason, but she, well, there were a couple things. There's really probably two major reasons I would say. She saw some things. She saw, she started seeing through some things and, um, she, she like is probably more like me in the way she thinks. And she had to have a reason to leave, like a spiritual reason. Okay. She said, I left for my unborn children. She said, that's why she left. Oh. But she also wanted to go to medical school. And he was interfering with every time she would try to apply or she would bring it up, he would be like, mm. and it, he, she wasn't getting support. And I know that child from the time she was little bitty, there has always been that desire in her heart to help people. And I, it's just now being fulfilled. She's a third year medical student and I'm so proud of her. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. Yeah. So proud of her. Okay. Um, That's wonderful. And so your son, who was younger and who then, as a teenager, almost really an adult, um, decided to make the change. And what prompted him? He he saw through it, I think, when he was probably like 16. He, he, they were making him. Okay. So in the final custody agreement, and this is a side note. I had the presence of mind to forbid him to move out of state because I knew the church had moved out of state and I knew they would Mm -hmm. run up there and live near the church. So the one victory, the one legal victory I had was keeping them in South Carolina. Right. Okay. Okay. David has been taken to, uh, in by families up there a lot. And he was, greatly influenced but as he became a young man he was having to be like in contact with his new brother-in-law in in the church and they were trying to do a number on him and the fundraising was really irritating him they were having to go sell pizza out of the back of their cars they were selling um candy bars they they he would go up there on the weekend wanting to have fun with his friends and he ended up fundraising mhm mhm that that relationship is a real work in progress i mean it's mm. it's a lot was lost 10 years yeah yeah and so i i mean i don't want to 
you know, betray his confidence. But I'm wondering from your perspective, when you say it's a work in progress, what are you noticing as the things that are kind of getting in the way? And what are you noticing as pieces of progress in your relationship? We talk, he has, I would say he he has my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so we... (laughs) We laugh about things that happened a lot. And it's always been our connecting point is, is, is even bef- when we were in the cult together, when he was just little, we would just laugh about things all the time. And he, he has that same sense of humor. And I would say that a sense of humor is probably one of the best gifts because it brings up the absurd and it helps you look at it without making you sad or. Mm-hmm. anything just can mm-hmm. the absurdity of things and so he you know we laugh and we um I think that it's our laughter that has made us closer I think he has a lot to process uh still because he's very young you know my my daughters didn't get out until they were older you have to get some life behind you you have to meet some people that aren't in the church you mm-hmm. have to get out and get a job and experience life to see that this is not all there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. when you're raised in something and, you know, it's totally different. I mean, I had a life before all this. Mm-hmm. They were raised in it. Right. Yeah. There is a whole other kind of field of study that is for what they call SGAs, the second generation members of these groups. And there is a real disorientation when people are kind of entering into the world having not experienced it before. But at an age where society is expecting that you know how to do this, whatever this is, or just be in the world or just understand um, culture, um, and how to be appropriately social with people and, uh, and just be aware enough where you can kind of pass and not seem so much like a fish out of water and so different, but it's very hard, especially when you're 19 to be suddenly like landing on earth and right. And, and it's, it's very hard. And so I give him a lot of credit for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I have daughter number four. Yeah. Let's talk about her. Oh, she's married in there. She is married. There are, there were, it's got a little different configuration now. Um, She is married to the son of one of the original three pastors there. So it's like checkmate. It's like, okay in your face and and david who was around it my son who was around it more does confirm that he he believed that he totally architect was the architect in that relationship i mean it just was mm-hmm. to to not only keep a hold on her but to do it in a way with, you know, with who she was matched up with to send a message to you. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It It is sort of in your face, but it's more like you're not getting this one back. Mm. Okay. Which may or may not be true. And I don't, I really do have hope and it's, it's, one of your podcasts was inspiration to me. I believe her name is Tori mm-hmm. from LG. It was one of the podcasts where you talked about do something to make your loved ones remember the the good times. Yeah, and you're about cookies. I think you said uh-huh, it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's the multi sensory way of reconnecting. Well, I didn't have anything like that, but you know, Rachel, it gave me the courage. I listened to your podcast all the way. It's like, I don't remember how many hours it was to there, four hours to where she is. I drove there. I sat outside the church till church got out. I walked over to her amidst people saying things to me like, 
And I said, I just wanted you to know that you're not forgotten. And I love you. Wow. With people shouting things at me. and Shouting what things at you? I'm just kind of get. I'm trying to get a sense of what you were experiencing. There's freedom in Jesus. And I turned around and I said, I know. And that's why I'm not here anymore. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, just the, you feel like the, you know, the let, the scarlet letter. Okay. But you walked through that, the gauntlet, you walked through the fire. It took a lot. Yeah. It really, it took a lot of, uh, and, and I also talked to another, uh, lady there and said, if you ever want to leave, you need to let me know. I will help you. And I said, and they won't take your kids the way they took mine. Wow. Right on. <laughs> Very strong person. Wow. And I know it, it took a while to kind of wind up to that point where you had the nerve to do that. But oh, I had so much adrenaline running through me. Yeah. I just, you know, it just, it's a you know, but anyway, yes, there's, and the sisters, the two sisters went and. Oh, your two other daughters went. They actually went and followed the same technique I did. Cause we don't know where she lives. We don't know how to find her. We just knew where the church was. So they went and they did the same thing um, to get their face in front of her. I think that that is so important that they. Can, you can think in your mind, your loved ones don't care about you. You can believe what they say. But when someone shows up and you know they've driven four hours to get to you, to tell you that they love you and knowing that's all they're going to get to say and that you're not forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. It, it shows so much devotion and it shows love and the importance of that message of not being forgotten, uh, it might not be something that she can respond to now, uh, but you know that it goes somewhere. And it reminds people also that they haven't burned their bridges, that they have a place to go and they have a family that loves them no matter what. And that's vital. And I love that. I love that you did that. And I love that your daughters did that as well. That's our little family. Okay. And so I'm really glad that we had a a chance to talk today because, you know, you, you, you speak from such a kind of genuine homespun perspective, you know, this happened to me. I was, I I was caught up in something turned out to not be what it said it was going to be, or it turned out to be destructive. I was trying to protect my family. I couldn't for a while. And now I'm able to do what I can to rebuild as many of those relationships as possible, but still keep a link emotionally to this other person who, from your perspective, is still kind of being held back or ensnared. And to know that she has a place to go, uh, I think is really, really wonderful. And I think a lot of people can relate to your story. And Thank you for thank you for reaching out and for taking the time to tell it. Well, thank you for giving me the platform. It what what you're doing in this podcast is so valuable. I would have given anything to have had this when I first to be able to listen to this when I first came out. Well, thank you for sharing what you shared. I know it's not an easy story to tell, to have to retell and to think about. Um, so I value you wanting to (laughs) put yourself through having those memories because I know that it's, those are not fun ones, but I love that there is, uh, there's a hopefulness and there is, there is something now that you're able to do in your life that feels more in line with who you are, that you're able to be that mom and you're able to be strong. And it seems also like you're able to adjust to where your kids are and what they're needing and not push it and just welcome them and let them be. And that's the thing, you know, if there's any reason this is worth the cost, my relationship with them is beautiful and it's real and it's honest. And they say what they think and I say what I think. And who can put a 
who it was worth this. Mm. It was worth not to live a lie. Mm. Yeah, right. Live a genuine life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Cindy Rudd contacted me originally to tell me that she and a family member of hers were avid listeners of the podcast, which was very nice to hear. And she told me a little bit about her experiences. So I asked if she'd like to tell them to you, and I'm so glad that she agreed. What's powerful about her story, and there are many things that are powerful, but something that I'd like to highlight is that She speaks from the perspective of somebody who brought her children into a situation that then she could not get them out of. I hear about this time and time again. Not just from parents of children, but sometimes children who got their parents involved in things, or spouses who got the other spouse involved, or siblings who got their other siblings involved. And then when they came to see the destructive nature of the group or the destructive nature of the person in charge of them, and that it was not what it promised to be, then they're able to get out, but they're not able to get their loved ones out. Cindy knew firsthand what was happening there, so she could potentially have had more credibility with her kids, sometimes more than other people who have never experienced being on the inside. But still, this is not always enough to get people to leave just because the person who is beseeching you can speak from actual experience. Your loved ones are not necessarily going to be open to hearing what you have to say if they're not ready to leave or are too afraid still, or just not ready for you to be right about it all. And it could also be that they're not ready to leave because they're still receiving some other big benefits from being there, like a sense of community, even though, as we've talked about, it is a conditional community. Or they're in a relationship with someone there and they're not willing to give up that relationship. Or they're receiving something that helps them feel protected, whether it's real or not. And it calms their sense of anxiety about the world. So Cindy was up against all of that. And she needed to do something that a lot of people have to do, which is they hope and they wait and they work. They hope. Their loved ones will come out and they wait and they try to keep offering a message in any way they can to their loved ones that they still have a place to come to and that the relationship means something to them and they will always have that kind of connection. Some of the work also is that they need to educate themselves, the people who have gotten out, about what happened to them so they can understand what's still happening to their loved ones. And they want to be able to explore how they got drawn in and why they were also very sure, 100% sure at times, that this would be the best life for their children or any of their other loved ones too. But the work is also work that is very hard to do beyond the education piece, beyond going to workshops like the ones that I co-lead with my friends Pat and Joe at the International Cultic Studies Association for the family and friends of those involved in restrictive environments. The work is sometimes the work that you need to do to regain your own life and to not feel selfish doing it, to regain your own strength, to get a sense of what you need, how to fill yourself back up so that then if you need to, You can advocate for your loved ones and you'll have the strength to pull from and the clarity and you'll be able to handle something that is usually a pretty messy process. There are going to be great disappointments and a lot of time passing where you're not sure if things are going to work out. And there's also just a great amount of wishing and praying for some. But it takes a lot of strength and patience and also can be quite exhausting in and of itself, yet it can be debilitating if it's all you do instead of taking care of your basic needs, instead of sleeping through the night. Loved ones sometimes feel they can never turn their cell phones off and they can never go away on a vacation or it would be selfish of them to take care of something they needed while they were in the mode of kind of needing to rescue their loved one. But 
those things are not mutually exclusive. You need to have a reservoir from which to pull the strength and basically the tenacity that it takes to hang tight and to create a team needed around you of professionals and friends to handle the pushback that you get from people, from your loved ones, or the criticisms you get from people when they find out about what happened and the lack of sensitivity you sometimes get from people who will say, well, why did you ever think this was a good idea? And why did you ever bring your loved ones into it? It takes a lot of resilience, more than people realize. So, kudos to Cindy and others like her, who, after a while, find a way to balance furthering their own goals, kind of rebuilding their own lives, while enduring being looked down on and being mistreated and being sometimes emotionally abandoned by the loved ones they are still desperately hoping to rescue and to have back in their lives. And then they need to be careful to not let the resentments carry over into rebuilding a relationship afterwards and being able to start fresh. So there are some people out there who are tough and obviously strong on the outside who come across like people who have been through something rough and you can tell and you know not to mess with them. But there are others, like Cindy, who are smiley and calm and seemingly calm, full of good humor, but don't let that fool you. Because inside, they have the strength of a warrior and deserve the respect given to those who never give up the fight. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.